Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence. I'm Don Shelby. My co-host today, Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversive, and is the Citizens Climate International Director. He's also lead strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Today, our subject is natural capital. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Pulaski, an expert in valuing and accounting for ecosystem services. In short, valuing nature in a different way. He is in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, a resident fellow at the Institute on the Environment, and co-leader for mapping and valuing ecosystem services for the Natural Capital Project. Professor, welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence. First things first, describe, Professor, what we mean by natural capital. Nature does a lot of things for us that uh, provide benefits. And, um, you know, we, we can think about... Um, uh, an ecosystem that stores carbon that provides value that way or cleans the air or you know helps purify the water. These are all valuable things. And um, the, the fact that nature does it means that nature is a form of capital or an asset that, um, that is, is providing valuable goods and services to people. The Intergovernmental Panel, the Millennium Project, was started a long time ago with the hopes that business and finance would begin to understand the value of nature and the services that the ecosystems provide. Have you gained much ground in those years? Okay, this is a you know you're, you're talking to an economist, so I'm going to give you the the two-handed economist answer, which is. On one hand, we're making tremendous progress, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So um, I work with colleagues uh, from the um, Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, we work also with colleagues from around the world and in the Natural Capital Project. And there's been tremendous uptake and interest in trying to understand how it is that nature contributes value to us, how valuable that is and how we can manage our ecosystems in a way and how we can manage our own actions in a way that increase those values or at least maintain them. China has actually developed a system of accounts that parallel the set of economic accounts that generate GDP, or gross domestic product. They're developed a set of accounts that, that track how the flow of nature's benefits to people in China are going, and they call it GEP or gross ecosystem product. And the idea is that they're trying to put on the same platform, the same you know playing field, how these nature's benefits and, and the values of those relative to the kind of conventionally measured economic goods and services that every country accounts for in, in their GDP accounts. Businesses are also, we found, tremendously receptive. So Certainly on the climate side, uh, people are much more aware of their carbon footprint and the actions that they can take to either reduce the emissions or increase the storage. So there's work underway to think about natural climate solutions. How is it that we can store more carbon or release less carbon from ecosystems by the way we manage it? So people are talking about regenerative agriculture to increase the amount of carbon that's in the soil. These are all tremendous strides forward. On the downside, <laughs> the economy keeps growing bigger. There are more of us and we do more things. So 
the scale and speed of action is still not sufficient to counter the threats that we are imposing on nature and the degradation of natural capital, unfortunately, continues. Stephen, it's been said that a definition of ecosystem services might be the goods and services produced by ecosystems for the benefit of humankind. But are there also benefits that are less directly evident, less easily traceable, but that ultimately could add up to more value that we also need to start thinking about how to capture, how to measure? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, you know, one of the concerns now is that by just measuring the things that we know enough about and can capture now, that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in a way. And, you know, maybe just by looking at those values, you know, people say, oh, well, that's not, that's not so large. Because of the complexity of the ecosystem, we may not know, you know, if we pull a thread in one part of the ecosystem, how does that eventually lead to changes in how that ecosystem functions? And then all of the changes in the benefits that we get from that ecosystem. So the one thing that will be unsurprising in the future is that there will be surprises in the changes in values. It also sounds like part of what that extra value that's still being discovered and revealed and quantified is avoiding risk and reducing the cost that comes from nonlinear compounding risks like global heating and climate disruption. Is natural capital and natural capital accounting part of the future of national fiscal policy banking and insurance companies and their efforts to assess and to avoid risk? It should be. There are certainly cases where, I mean, I think the, the case where this is furthest along is with the insurance and reinsurance companies and coastal properties. Obviously, with sea level rise, with um, potentially increasing uh, severity of, of storms, there's going to be more damage along the coasts. And, and if you're an insurance company and you are you, you, in your portfolio are a number of properties along the coast, this is of concern. So they're obviously very interested in climate change projections. They were also interested in ecosystem changes along the coast. You know, are, are the coral reefs changing or the seagrass beds changing? Because those can provide protection from some of the the damages from storms, you know, you can they can dampen the waves. If there's wetlands in between you and the open ocean, that can dissipate a lot of the energy and potential damage from incoming storms. So there is interest in this. I think it's fair to say that the financial community and business community is interested and they see the potential values here, but it's just starting. It's not mature enough in many instances, either the science or our complete understanding, or it's it just hasn't penetrated yet into the fully into business. Professor, the world has been in a cycle for nearly two centuries of taking from nature, making something from nature, consuming that product, disposing of it. How long can this go on when research shows that two-thirds of the Earth's ecosystems are already severely depleted? This is the thing that keeps me going at trying to do this work faster and better. So I worked on the uh, Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services uh, assessment that was recently put out. And we were looking at the ecosystem set of ecosystem services globally and looking at trends over the last 50 years. And the trends in virtually everything was down. The only exceptions to that were the things that we do like agricultural production which is related to a reason why other things are going down, which is, you know, we've, we've transformed lots of natural habitats into 
agricultural ecosystems for our benefits, uh, for food benefits, but to the detriment of water quality and carbon storage and habitat and so forth. Many people are worried about something we talked about a few minutes ago, which are these nonlinear crossing a threshold. So we don't really know where those are. How long can it go? I'm, I'm, I don't know the forecast of that, but I do know that uh, we literally are playing with fire, that um, the more we push the systems out of you know, where we've got historical experience, the more likely it is we'll see surprises that um, may have unpleasant consequences for us. There are a lot of different ways of uh, valuing nature. The direct benefit, which we all understand because we can see it with our naked eyes, we go out uh, fishing and we catch a fish and we eat it. That is something that is a service being provided by the ecosystem. There are indirect, of course, uh, bequests in existence. There are a number of ways of valuing, but it gets to be very difficult to communicate that to other human beings who are not seeing indirects or existence values or bequest values. How do you convince someone in a boardroom that they have to look at these things and take it into account, literally, in their accounting processes? There's two difficulties that we've encountered in doing this. One is that many of the benefits that we're talking about, the impacts of an action are separated in time and space. So let me not be quite so unclear about this, more direct. So, for example, a farmer in Minnesota, they put on nitrogen fertilizer into, in, to, in order to grow their corn crop. Some of that nitrogen fertilizer ends up in the corn, which is where we want it. Some of it ends up in water that goes downstream, goes into groundwater and changes the nitrogen concentration in the groundwater that ends up polluting their own or nearby wells. Some of it flows down the Mississippi River and ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. So we need to have the link between actions that are done here in Minnesota at the upper end of the watershed all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, where that excess nutrient may help form the dead zone or expand the dead zone, the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which causes damages to fishing interests down there. So, you know, part of this is tying the threads together. Like you've done something here at this time, and that has caused chain of events that has led to costs or damages that are happening far away in time and in place. The, the other thing, though, is even if we do understand it and we can make clear, like here's the chain of events that go from putting on the fertilizer in the farm field to the expansion of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. The other is in terms of policy. So economists talk about something called externalities, which is that maybe I take an action and it harms you, but I don't have to pay for it. So does the farmer, except out of the goodness of their heart, they don't have to pay for the damages that are caused to the fishermen down in the Gulf of Mexico? So, you know, unless we have some way of bringing that back home, Businesses, unless they, you know, are altruistic, it's not their problem. So we have to have a ways of of trying to, you know, not only value this, but literally bring it into the accounting and incentive systems that businesses face. A, a clear example of how to do this, people have talked about, for example, carbon taxes. So you emit carbon, 
you pay a price for it. We do this currently also for things like emissions of air pollutants. So sulfur dioxides and nitrogen oxides, there are you know limits on how much you can pollute. And there's a, a, an emissions trading program. So there literally is a price. If a company emits more, they have to have a permit and they have to buy that permit. So there is a price. So it gets internalized into the into the company and they realize there's they have an economic or monetary incentive to reduce the amount of pollution. And we need to have a way of doing that, not just for the pollutants, but also for the positives. Like we should reward people for taking actions that increase natural capital and the flow of services that uh, that that, ha- that comes from that increase in capital. Is that a PES? Is that the payment for ecosystem services? Right. So the that is one way of doing this. A number of countries and programs have instituted these payments for ecosystem services. The one that's been longest established actually was in Costa Rica, where they... Um, pay landowners, for example, to reforest and they get payments for based on carbon and based on improvements to um, water and habitat and aesthetic contributions. So that that is, in fact, one way of doing it. Is the, are these payments for ecosystem services? Yeah. You mentioned watersheds earlier and the connections between farming upstream and what happens further downstream with water quality ecosystems, the Gulf of Mexico, is another way to not only value natural capital, but also begin to hold people accountable or incentivize accountability to draw those connections, tie those threads together, as you said, and then find new ways of financing shared interest and shared responsibility. So for instance, if a farmer upstream were to use cleaner practices, it would make the cost of clean water systems downstream or the cost of protecting nature downstream much less. It might make farmland more productive if regenerative farming practices can be brought in. And so there's the shared overall interest. Does that fall into the landscape of of possibility in terms of investing in natural capital. Absolutely. There there are actually, you know, payments for ecosystem services was one example, but there is a shared interest here. So um, I'll give you a different example. All throughout Latin America, there are programs called water funds. And what water funds do, there are water users downstream, oftentimes uh, a big city, or um, maybe it's an industrial user. But the first one that really got going was in Quito, Ecuador. And what Quito realized was that if they protected the headwaters of their the streams that rivers that provide their municipal water supply, if they protected those watersheds, the heads of those watersheds, which was fairly cheap to do, that they wouldn't have to spend so much money downstream cleaning up to provide clean drinking water to the city of Quito. So what they did was they they negotiated with the people upstream to undertake land management practices that would keep the water clean coming down to Quito. This this had benefits all around. It was um, you know, benefit to you know, the, the people upstream were getting some investment to keep their natural capital. The people downstream were benefiting because it was far cheaper for them to do this kind of investment than it would be to have to invest in a water treatment plant to clean up what had gotten uh, fouled. So you know, here, here's a case where you can structure it so that there's, there, 
you know, an economist would call it gains from trade. There's uh, some a better way to run the system, and you have to figure out, you know, how to bring people together in order to realize that better way to run the system. And the water funds are not unique. There are many cases where, because we right now don't take account of these benefits, and we're we're, you know. From an economic point, we're being inefficient. We're we're doing things that are destroying value. And if we can be clever enough, we can tie these threads together and then figure out the institutional arrangements to how to bring uh, bring the potential producers of these ecosystem services with the people who benefit from them. Um, then we can end up with a situation where where both sides or all sides are improved. In the outcomes, Steve, you mentioned earlier the IPBES and the the biodiversity assessment, and you said that the trends are are pretty much all going in the wrong direction. We're seeing degradation of biodiversity, degradation of ecosystems, loss of natural capital. For people who are wondering what that means for their everyday experience, how does that tie into the science that tells us that we might see multiple breadbasket failure? Does that biodiversity that is not in itself agricultural, do those ecosystems that are not themselves producing crops, do they either make it possible to have healthy, productive farmland or make it harder for that to exist? And is their loss the loss of our ability to sustain ourselves? There are some very direct arguments in terms of pest control and in terms of pollinators that our agriculture currently benefits from natural habitat, which is nearby. We may in the future be faced with a situation, or we, we certainly have this now too, where certain strains of, of our crops run afoul of some pest. You know, we get wheat rust or something else. And if there are wild relatives that we have maintained, we can oftentimes crossbreed in a resistance to that, that pest. So you know, this is this is the argument about genetic diversity as being kind of the the books in a library, and and when you lose these wild relatives, you've you've lost some knowledge, which may in fact turn out to be pretty important at some point in the future. Professor, GDP has been around for eighty five years, only eighty five years, and it is a measure, of course, of goods and services produced by any country. And I think the global GDP is something around uh, seventy two, seventy five. Uh, trillion dollars. But in GDP, even though China has made some movements in this direction, our GDP does not take into account anything having to do with ecosystem services. Do you think that that will change? I hope so. I keep thinking that the things that I am doing, I'm just trying in many ways to be a good economist, which means doing complete analysis and as you say, right now, we're only, you know, if you're, if you're really doing benefit cost analysis and you were doing it the right way, you would include all of the benefits and costs of your action. And right now we only contain, we only do a slice and GDP only has a slice of what are all of the benefits um, that are out there. You know, if we don't change this, I, I think there is a large sense in which you do get what you manage for and you manage for what you measure. And so we have measured GDP 
and we've measured economic activity in the form of GDP. And we've expanded GDP tremendously. You know, one way of writing the history of the 20th century is that we've increased GDP per capita many times over. But the 21st century, we've realized that there are many things beyond GDP or what's in GDP that really truly matter. I mean, a way of saying natural capital is this is truly the infrastructure which underpins all of our economic activity. And if we don't have a way of factoring that in and taking that into account and having our decisions reflect the true importance of maintaining this underlying infrastructure, then I fear the 21st century is not going to turn out very well. So, you know, your question is, am I hopeful that, for example, the U.S. will do this? I guess I'm hopeful because this is such an imperative. I, I don't see us thriving you know, for my kids or grandkids, unless we actually um, start doing a better job of managing ourselves on this finite planet. And one way to do that is to actually take seriously this notion of natural capital and ecosystem services and factor that into all of our decisions. The listeners to this program will uh, tire of me after a while of using this same quote, but it's Governor Gaylord Nelson on Earth Day, the original Earth Day, who made the statement that the U.S. economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature. Do you think a message that simple can resonate in boardrooms? I do. And, and in fact, in boardrooms and outside of boardrooms, I think people realize increasingly when we see with climate change and loss of biodiversity, it's much easier in some sense to see it now when you when you see the kind of fabric of nature unraveling that you you realize just how valuable that fabric is. My own experience has been that when you have a clear explanation of the science which truly links like if you do this here this has this set of consequences and these unknowns because of course there are many unknowns. But here is you know, it's not just on science level. It's here is how this translates to things that you as a business person or you as a citizen actually care about. So we're not just talking about, you know, valuing nature for nature's sake, which I also think is important, but it's it's tying this back to saying this is enlightened self-interest. You know, business does understand a fair amount about enlightened self-interest. So making this case and making it in I think it's important to make these cases in boardrooms. Before I turn it over to Joe to uh, close out this uh, element of the podcast, I just want to think about something Benjamin Franklin is supposed to have said. You will not value water until the well runs dry. We don't want to get to that place. I completely agree. And frankly, this is what scares me about much of the erosion of natural capital that you don't realize it. It's, I guess it's the Joni Mitchell song, you don't know what you got till it's gone. When it's much easier to maintain rather than try to restore. And if we are not foresighted enough to maintain things which have great value and at some later date are forced to try to restore it and whether we actually can or not, this is the thing that really worries me, that, that we take what are essentially very costly or even irreversible decisions that will turn out to be large mistakes. It raises the question, could we see a kind of cultural shift where we're not just talking about the science, 
the value of nature, how to account for these things, but where the marketplace of ideas, the policy environment, and the everyday economy actually make it harder and harder to run a business that depends on getting away with generating this kind of harm, simply because so many competitors have found ways not to do that, that that's where people want to put their stock, where they want to invest their time, make small purchases, make large investments. Is that cultural shift on the horizon? Should we be thinking towards it? We should definitely be thinking towards it. How far away we are from it, I don't know. And whether we can bridge that gap at the speed with which we need to do it in order to avoid some of these worst mistakes or the, the you know worst losses of natural capital, I mean, I think that is really the that's the true crux of of the problem. I hope we can do this. I struggle as a professional economist and also somebody who is in the conservation community with not becoming multiple personalities, right? I'm trying to do good economics, which to me means that you are taking account of all of the costs and benefits, all of the impacts of your action, both short-term and long-term, both that strike close to home and maybe strike somebody halfway around the world if it's climate change or loss of biodiversity. So, you know, I, I would hope that we can actually figure out how to get these values, I'll just call it mainstreamed, so that it doesn't take a special act of conscience for me to do the right thing, but it's it's kind of baked into the system so that everybody going about their everyday business is are doing things where we're, we're meeting people's needs, but we're doing this in a way that maintains the system for the long term. So it's not just our needs that are being met, but, but those of future generations. Professor Pulaski, thank you very much for being with us today and helping us understand natural capital. Uh, it seems that it boils down out of the pastoral sense. We all love nature, but at the same time, I think we undervalue it as the most important element of the success of all of the species on Earth, including human beings. Our welfare relies on nature and its largesse and its ecosystem services. Thank you very much for being with us, Steve. Thanks very much for having me. And if you're more interested in diving deeper into some of these issues, you can go to geoversity.net and, of course, earthintel.org and leave a comment if you'd like to. Thank you very much for being with us on Earth Intel, the podcast. <laughs>